0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. On the 23rd of January 1978, Baron Édouard Empin was snatched from the streets of Paris in an audacious kidnapping attempt. Before long, a ransom of 80 million francs was demanded. And to show that the kidnappers meant business, they chopped off the baron's little finger, with the disturbing warning that more body parts would follow. And this wasn't the worst of it. In his new book, The Last Baron, Tom Sancton charts the two tangled months of the kidnapping case, which led to a bloody shootout and ultimately the fall of the industrial giant, the Ompon dynasty. Emily Briffitt spoke to Tom to find out more.
2: Tom, it's lovely to be chatting to you today.
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
2: Now, your new book, The Last Baron, follows the kidnapping of Baron Edouard jean Empain in 1978, but also charts the history of one of Europe's major industrial juggernauts. To start us off, can you run us through what happened? How did a baron come to be kidnapped?
3: He was a very prominent member of the... Uh, the French establishment. He was a, uh, an, an industrialist who was the head of uh, one of the one of the world's most powerful uh, industrial groups. That had activities in uh, you know banking, energy, transport, all sorts of things, especially nuclear energy. His company had a monopoly uh, on the construction of all the French uh, nuclear power plants. So he was a very Prominent, important figure. His uh, his company was uh, was crucial to French economic and 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 security interests. And so he was uh, he was somebody who was during this decade of the nineteen seventies when there was a whole. Wave of kidnappings. He was somebody who was a pretty logical target uh, for, for kidnapping. He was also perceived to be uh, fabulously wealthy, and the company, of course, had you know sales up in the tens of billions of, of francs. So uh, the kidnappers assumed they could make a quick killing with a um, not, not literally killing, but a killing with a, with a ransom. And uh, and so that's that's kind of how he he uh, was in the crosshairs of this uh, this group of, of kidnappers. So on the january twenty third nineteen seventy eight they launched the operation and very easily snatched him in front of his house as he got into his chauffeur driven car and then that uh, that was the beginning of this whole this whole true crime caper.
2: I'm going to jump back as you say, to this true crime investigatory story, but you spoke about his company. I'd like to give us a bit of context really situate the story. So can you explain what the Empin industrial empire was and perhaps its significance in Europe at this time?
3: Yeah, well, it was founded by his grandfather, uh, the first uh, Baron Empin. And who was Belgian. He was born into a modest family in, in Belgium in 1852. He was one of those remarkable figures like uh, J.D. Rockefeller or Cornelius B- Vanderbilt in the U.S., one of these self-made men who was uh, uh, actually driven by, uh, by by ambition and, uh, uh, and vision and uh, created this industrial group that was uh, based on railroads, uh, transportation, energy, civil engineering. Uh, and he built this empire a little, little by little, and became very prominent in the building of railroads and, and uh, tramways. In fact, he he built railroads uh, all over Europe and in parts of Asia, and uh, he became um, one, one of the founders of the uh, builders of the Paris Metro around 1900. And also, uh, well, he, he was into all sorts of things. He built this incredible, fantastic city on this desert of, of Egypt north of of Cairo, called Heliopolis, the City of the Sun. He created this this whole city. He was one of these uh, visionary-driven kind of international capitalists. And when he died in 1929, he was one of the world's wealthiest men. So his son uh, was uh, Jean, also known as Johnny, he took over the company. He was of kind of a of a, of a different sort. He was uh, a hedonist. He was much more interested in throwing wild parties in his chateau and cruising the world on his on his yacht than he was minding the store. But he was seconded by good uh, professional managers, and the company continued to to grow and thrive. So by the time. His son, which is our hero, the one who who was kidnapped and who was known to his friends, as Wado. Okay. By the time Wado finally took over in the late 60s, the company was was really essential to to the French economy in in, in a number of ways, and particularly through um, its monopoly of the creation of nuclear power plants. And so um, that's kind of that's a, in a nutshell, kind of the, the the story of the rise of this great industrial empire, which comprised 175 companies and employed about almost 150,000 people in a dozen different countries. So this was a pretty big deal, the Ampens-Schneider industrial empire.
2: So I guess this really gives us a framing of why the kidnapping of Edouard would be significant.
3: Yeah, well, it was significant uh, because of of how important the group was to, to French economic interests and in security interests. And also, he was, a, he was a member of the French establishment. He was, he was half, half Belgian and half American, but actually his whole activity, his chateau, his company headquarters were all in Paris. So for all intents and purposes, he was a prominent member of the, the French establishment. He was a friend of the president, Giscard d'Estaing and um he was he was somebody whose survival was considered Im- important you know to to french interests not to mention to the interests of the group and the interests of his of his family of course and so uh giscard uh, ordered one of the biggest police investigations in french history and it involved uh, 80 french detectives working pretty much around the, around the clock so this was uh it was a big deal and i, I was actually studying in france at the time and i remember this uh when this this news flash came and it was in, in in all the headlines, and the French press went absolutely ballistic, you know, calling it the uh, the kidnapping of the century. On one level, it's a it's a police story and a you know manhunt, and on another level, it's it's really it's a saga about the the rise of this of, of this dynasty.
2: There's so many things you mentioned there that I really like to pick on as we chat. But you were saying about how you actually found out about this story having studied in France. And I think one of the really interesting things about your book is actually the way you went about researching it. Can you tell us more about that side of things?
3: Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was, a, very, it was a very interesting subject to research because it involved, I guess, two, two disciplines that I had learned. First, historical research, pure historical research. I have a, a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University. So my first discipline, my first training was, uh, was in the methods of the, of the historian, but also spent 20 years as a, as a writer and correspondent for Time magazine, and much of that time as the bureau chief in, in Paris. And so the, the, there's a reportorial side of this too, which involved uh, the journalistic methods of particular interviews. And I was lucky enough to, to get access to, to people who were key play, had been key players in this thing. Well, I guess the, the main one was the, uh, the head kidnapper, the Alan Kyle, who actually organized this thing. And he's now 80 years old, a free man after spending decades in prison for, for various capers. But he's a very, uh, very interesting man. He's very erudite. He's, uh, he has a passion for books and, and grand opera. He was born to a fairly wealthy family. Attended posh boarding schools and uh, really not at all the profile of your average average gangster, but he, early on he embraced a life of crime as, as an act of revolt against his domineering father, and uh, that was he launched a career as a bank robber, and then finally ca- came up with this idea of um, hitting a big jackpot and retiring. The big jackpot was was the ransom that they expected to get from kidnapping. Baron well, on He he was one figure, but the, but there were maybe four or five of the detectives who had been intimately involved in this story, uh, who talked to me. One one was uh, Andre Bizol, who had had kind of coordinated the whole the whole investigation. He was a, a kind of a hard drinking, uh, hard boiled cop who, who moonlighted as a is uh, a crooner in a dance band. Uh, another one was Jean Magieri, was a Eurasian martial arts expert, who was assigned to, to uh, immobilize the kidnappers with his bare hands when, he, when they, they came to get the ransom. Then there was uh, Commissaire Boussard, leg- legendary figure in the, in the history of uh, in the French police, and also members of the family. Uh, Watteau's uh, half-sister, Diane, was very helpful. His daughter, Patricia, was very helpful. So these, these are people that I could actually uh, meet and talk to and interview Using the methods of uh, of journalism, so with those two methods of historiography and, and journalism, I was able to put together a story which which dealt on basically on two tracks: one with the kind of the TikTok of the kidnapping and its aftermath, and the other that whole multi generational saga, corporate history, uh, the deeper backstory to the to the kidnapping.
2: There seems to be such a colourful cast of characters in this story. So with that, could you give us more detail on what actually happened? What is the kidnapping story?
3: Okay. Well, uh, w- what happened was on the morning of January 23rd, 1978, baron en Wado, came out of his uh, posh apartment building and, um, at 10.20, his usual time, and was met by his, his chauffeur, he got into the car, and uh, the car had, had driven only a, a short distance before a, a motor scooter came around it and slid and fell over in front of it. And the chauffeur hit the brakes, said, you know, what's going on? Honking his horn. Then a van pulled up behind the, the car and blocked it from behind, and there was another van parked just on the side of the road, and four or five men emerged from that, from that van, and four people from the van behind it. So... Four of the kidnappers jumped into the car. They they, they grabbed the chauffeur and threw him out, put him in another van. And then they uh, they jumped in two in front, two in back, they put a hood over Wado's head, they handcuffed him and put a gun to his head and said, Do do what we say or, or we'll blow your brains out. So that was the beginning. And then they, they drove off, they parked the car in a in a parking garage and switched cars. Because at that time, they were in, they were in on pass uh, on car when they grabbed him. So then they switched cars and took him, after nightfall, took him to a, um, a secluded spot in a, about, I guess, 20 miles north of Paris, in a, located in a forest, and it was an abandoned stone quarry. German occupiers had used it to, uh, to store V-2 rockets during the war. It was uh, just this warren of, of underground tunnels that had been abandoned. They had set up tents, you know, pup tents, and um, the wherewithal to, to stay uh, a few days, they expected it to last only a few days. So this, uh, this tunnel into which Wato was uh, introduced was dark, unheated. So it's in January, it's just a few degrees above freezing. No electricity, obviously, no light, no heat. And he was blindfolded, so he's led into this tunnel, put in, the, in a tent. Uh, his uh chained to the wall by a neck chain and his hands and feet were were cha- were also chained. And one of the kidnappers came and said, first of all, you always have to put on your blindfold when we approach you because if you ever if you ever see us, we'll execute you immediately, because they didn't want to be identified. And then they said, and now we want you to read this document. And they showed him a type document that they prepared that said that they were going to demand a ransom of 80 million francs, which is equivalent to about 70 Million dollars today. They they asked him for the name of uh, contact people at his company, and then they said that they were going to cut off his his little finger to show they meant business. The first thing he said he didn't say anything about the finger. He just said, well, "You're you're completely out of your minds. You know, I, I don't I don't have that kind of money uh, available, and I can't whatever money I have, I can't free it up if I'm not there to sign papers. I can't can't do it with a phone call." And so they said. You're just bluffing, we'll we'll get around to that later, but they gave him a um, concoction to drink, which was kind of Valium and red wine, and uh, which put him to sleep eventually, and then they cut off his finger, they put it on a, a, a paper cutter, you know, one of these guillotine-style paper cup- cutters, put his finger under the blade, hit it with a mallet, and that was it. And put his finger in a little jar of formaldehyde, which they then took and deposited in a storage locker at, at the Gare de Lyon, the railroad station, along with some of his identity papers, and a letter demanding this ransom. And so the next day, one of his colleagues got a phone call saying, okay, go to locker number whatever at the Gall de Lyon, uh, and you'll find a little surprise. And so he went there with, with a policeman. They find this thing, ransom note, the finger, ID papers, and they realize that these guys, A, they held Wado, and B, they were ruthless, and they meant business, and they threatened to send other body parts unless the the ransom was paid immediately so that was that was how the whole thing started.
2: What was the law enforcement's response to this? Surely finger in a locker is going to send send off some alarms. How did they react
3: well they were they were very concerned. One of the detectives told me that he, that they really expected that that it was quite possible that they would be receiving you know a hand or a foot or you know, an ear or something. The, the police were very concerned. I mean, it's a very important man. Giscard d'Estaing, the president, was putting pressure on the police to, to try to find him immediately, make sure no harm came to him. The police chief, a man named Pierre Tavioli, who was a legendary figure in French law, law enforcement, he was actually in, in Los Angeles visiting friends at the time. Uh, he didn't get back for a few days. When he did come back, he organized this team, as I said, of 80, 80 detectives. And they were working around the block. But they had very few clues at first because the kidnappers were professional. In one sense, they were, like, they were not that bright. They were, they were like the Keystone cops in one sense. But they had professional methods like not leaving fingerprints and things, things like that. So the police immediately had no clues. And there were no witnesses. There were virtually no eyewitnesses. All this this took place in broad daylight, right, right on a, a major thoroughfare. So the French and the, the the French police in the beginning were stymied. They were actually absolutely stymied. They had, you know, the police have informants. They have a whole network of people in the in the underworld. They tapped their informants. Nobody knew anything. They received a lot of tips, anonymous tips, phone calls, uh, letters, claiming to to know something about the case, but uh, but all that led to to nothing. So. For a long time, they just they just came up empty. But one of the the key aspects of the police response was that the police chief Pierre Ottavioli, insisted that no ransom be paid, because in the beginning the family wanted to pay the ransom and get him get him back, and they realized they didn't have they didn't have that much money uh, available. Opa owned a lot of stock, but he didn't have a huge pile of cash sitting in the bank. The company, the the industrial group, the people who were uh, running it in Wado's absence, they didn't want to just pay it straight out. They offered to lend money to the family at a not particularly generous rate rate of interest. And so, initially, after the first few days, they were the family was able, and the colleagues were able to get together a thirty million francs instead of eighty million. There was a phone call contact with the kidnappers, and the kidnappers said, "Do you have the money?" The interlocutor on the other side said, well, we have $30 a not a cent more. And the kidnapper said, well, tomorrow you will have a cadaver and hung up. So that was the the end of any attempt to actually pay the ransom. So as I said, the police chief, Ottavioli, who arrived from from the U.S. a couple of days later, said, absolutely, no ransom. We will not pay a ransom. In many cases, when a ransom is paid, they they still leave a body by the, the roadside. He had a different idea. He would concoct a fake ransom using uh, pages of a telephone book cut in the size of uh, Swiss banknotes, shrink-wrapped with real banknotes on the top and bottom of each packet, but basically it's, it's all paper. And it filled two sports bags, weighed about 50, uh, 50 kilos, and he was going to lure the kidnappers into a trap, into an ambush, uh, with the promise of these this ransom, which was, as I say, a fake ransom. That was basically what the French response was initially, not panic, but uh very intense concern for Wado's uh, safety and a lot of frustration because they, were, they didn't have any good leads in the beginning and didn't really know where to look. But I think the key thing was the police chief said, well, okay, we will lure them uh, with the promise of a fake ransom and try to capture at least one of them as a counter hostage. So once you have a counter, once you have a hostage, then you can use that hostage to put pressure on his confederates to release the baron. So that that was basically the police game game plan. And and in the end, it worked.
2: How were the kidnappers actually found out and caught in the end? Then
3: that's that's a, one of the. It, most interesting parts of the of the whole story. There were eight of them. Uh it was really a motley crew. They were they were car thieves, pimps, drug pushers, some uh brighter than others. Kyle himself was, you know, the the organizer. He was uh as I said, erudite, smart, cultured. Some of them were were really kind of lowbrow criminal types. So, what happened was there was a rendezvous on a French highway, the A6 highway. South of Paris, and two of the kidnappers showed up to get the ransom was I said it was actually a fake ransom, but it was delivered by the martial arts expert, Jean Magieri that I mentioned the Eurasian martial arts expert and his assign his assignment was at the moment where they they met up to to hand off the the ransom, he would immobilize them with his hands because he he told me that he he could have immobilized up to five or six people at once by just quick moves and just what he knew how to, what he knew how to do. But what happened when, when he showed up, uh, the Mazieri showed up with the fake ransom in his car. He was supposed to, uh, retrieve a message. He'd been through a whole scavenger hunt, you know, that, that they were sending him all over the place. He was, was supposed to retrieve a message about exactly how to meet the kidnappers. And just, he pulled off to the side of the road. And then a, uh, a tow truck pulled up behind him thinking he, he was, you know, he needed to be uh, taken to a garage and that he was, you know, his car was, was, uh, had broken down. Uh, so Mazieri got out to wave away the tow truck. And at that point, Kayol and one other man, Daniel Duchateau, the co-organizer of the of the kidnapping, kind of jumped over from the top of a wall, jumped into Mazieri's car who, who, where he'd left the key. And they go driving off, because, thinking, okay, well, the ransom's in the back, and uh, we can just sort of drive off and disappear in this car. But he didn't realize that they were surrounded by a whole flotilla of police uh, cars that were unmarked. You know, they were like uh, postal vans, ambulances, taxis, and everything. And so they were they were very quickly cut off, and there was a shootout. Kyle was badly wounded. His colleague, Daniel Duchateau, was, was killed. And so that was... How Kyle was captured. So, Kyle was then uh, taken to uh, a hospital, the, kind of the, what they call the jailbird wing of, the, uh, uh, of this hospital, where people who were under police control were treated. And the police basically uh, exfiltrated him to police headquarters and they started working on him, telling him that if anything happened to the Baron, his head could roll, because France still had capital punishment at that time. It was it was only only abolished two or three years later, and they still use the guillotine. So he made a call to the people who were holding Wano, and said to release him. And basically, that's that's how he got released. So Duchateau is dead. Caill is apprehended, and the French the the police were able to to trace the number that that Cahol had telephoned, where the the Baron had been kept uh, incarcerated. And so by tracing that they they went and and found this this house uh it was had been abandoned by them but they found all sorts of information f- photographs plane tickets and and the the place had been rented in the name of brother-in-law of one of the kidnappers and it, basically they they were able to then follow the trail with br- pretty brilliant police work from the point where they identified that that house and were able to Recovered documents, names, and they would just kind of work their way through from from one uh, one to the other. And within I'd say eight months, they had, they had actually um, rounded up all 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 of the eight suspects.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: In a way, I wouldn't say it was inevitable that he would be a target, but it, it kind of w- was logical that somebody like like Wado in that era in that position was likely to become a, a target.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: It's an incredible story between, like, say, amputated fingers to shootouts to martial artists getting involved in the police investigation. It's crazy. How did the press and the public react to this story?
3: Oh well, the press, uh, the press went, as I said, went ballistic in the in the beginning. You know, it was just this this sensational story—the Baron Pin pin kidnapped—and then they followed. There was not that much news that came after, a, because for a long time the police were stymied and there was just nothing to report. You know, it's like uh, you know all quiet on the Western Front, and so um, after a while, the press sort of relegated the story to sort of the inside pages. But one of the things that was really important about the information that, that leaked out in the press was information about Wado's personal life, because he was a, a high-stakes gambler. He was re- really addicted, addicted to high-stakes gambling. And he had mistress, one mistress in particular, but he had several mistress, and he had a, a garçonnière, as a little private apartment in Paris where he would meet his his lady friends. And somehow or other... It, this leaked into the press and this was absolutely devastating for his his image because uh, up until that point he was considered you know this uh, major major industrialist a key figure in the French establishment uh, an aristocrat well he he wasn't really an aristocrat he his grandfather had gotten a title from the Belgian king because he was just as a recognition of his achievements as an industrialist. So all of a sudden, his image is tarnished and destroyed by these revelations about, I mean, he had millions and millions in gambling debts. And of course, in France, it's probably maybe not the end of the world if you found out uh, to have a mistress, but it, it all added up to something that really tarnished his image. And the thing about the gambling also, where speculation that he may have been had his finger cut off for unpaid gambling debts which is something that that happened you know the mafia was known to do and there was this, some sense that his his presence in the casinos and the you know very high stakes gambling that he did had attracted the attention of criminal elements and maybe was the reason why he he'd been chosen as a as a target anyway the press revelations about his private life were absolutely devastating and and had had major consequences for him after his his liberation
2: how did this image tarnishing affect his family's legacy as well?
3: Well, it was uh, obviously devastating to the to the family's image, the family's image of him, the family's relationship to him when once once he was released. I mean, he thought that he was going to be, you know, people throwing confetti from the balconies and you, pee champagne, you know. Finally, Baron Pompadour is free, uh, and he got a very cold reception from his wife and his his family. He said uh, at one point, and he wrote this in his memoir, that uh, he basically went from one prison to to another. One prison was where he was incarcerated, and the other prison was the life that he that he emerged into where he realized he was not he was not free to live the life he he had lived before his wife divorced him he was alienated from his children more or less and the worst thing that happened was that the people who ran the company particularly number the number 2 who ran the company in his absence a man named Rene Ingen basically told him that he should basically re- remove himself from the leadership at least temporarily because it, it it was bad for the image of the company that uh, shareholders uh, were, were not pleased at all to find out about all this, this, these huge gambling debts. And so he took he took a temporary leave. He came, took one of his mistresses and came to the U.S. and stayed several months and considered even uh, just kind of re- relocating to America and starting his life over again. Uh, ultimately, he went back, kind of had this confrontation with his his number two and said he was taking taking over the company again uh that lasted a short while but it was it became apparent to him that uh it wasn't going to work and so he sold he was forced basically by circumstances to sell out his one-third share in the in the group that his grandfather had had founded and was no longer part of the group and within a few years the the whole on group had been was kind of sold off spun off in bits and pieces. And the Anpain name disappeared. That was really the end of this, this Anpain industrial dynasty that was founded by the, the grandfather. And uh, it was really the kidnapping and the revelations about Anpain's private life that that led to this really tragic end for him. It was really like, uh, I'd I say the arc of his rise and fall is is akin to a, a Greek tragedy. So that was, well, to a large extent, the consequence of all this information that came out in the press and ultimately tarnished his image to the point where his life was uh, was never the same again. Very sad story, really.
2: So, how did this affect the family more widely?
3: The family uh, initially the, they had different reactions to to the to the kidnapping and, and the ransom demand in the beginning. He had two daughters, one uh, Patricia, who was I think nineteen or twenty years old at the time, married to an to an American. And she was nine, six months pregnant at the time. Christine was uh, her younger sister, I think, two years younger. And they had a brother, Jean Francois, who was I think about thirteen years old at the time. He was off at boarding school, and he he wasn't so directly involved. But the two girls, they just they wanted their daddy back, and they said, "Well, whatever it takes, you know, let let's just sell off a few companies." And they didn't realize that you know having a preponderant share in the in the in the group did not mean that he owned all 175 companies that he could just sell a company and take the money and pay off the ransom and that was that so they they were very they were very disturbed and and confused they just didn't understand how how they couldn't come up with the money the wife Silvana, who was italian she had no clue about about his business affairs she didn't she didn't really she was not she kind of enjoyed being wealthy, being the baroness and everything, but she, she didn't really know at all what, was, uh, what his business consisted of and how, you know, the details of the, uh, the industrial group. She thought, she thought that if she sold her jewelry collection, maybe that would help, which was sweet, but it was, it was not going to get up to uh, 80 million francs. His mother was a real piece of work. The mother was American, uh, her name was uh, Roselle Rowland. She grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And she was a former exotic dancer, a stripper, if you will. Wado's father, Jean Ompin, the, the playboy hedonist uh, son of the founder, caught her act in London at the Dorset Hotel in 1935 and, and was absolutely smitten by her and kind of whisked her away on his, his yacht. And um, two years later, she gave birth to a son who was Wado, the fu- future kidnapping victim. And so from having been a stripper, he married her and she became a, a baroness. And she was a, she was a very uh, scheming, self-centered, cold figure, uh, showed no affection uh, for for anybody. She was um, really kind of an odious person in a lot of ways. Well, to cut back to these discussions with, within the family about how to deal with the kidnapping, she said, well, I, I won't pay a cent, you know. I'm not going to give a cent. She had a lot of money. She said, if he comes back, he'll have the money. But she refused to, to pay. So there was this really horrible argument within the family. She thought it was good for him. She thought that it would take him down a pig because he was he was arrogant and just a bit too haughty for her taste. She thought this would be a humbling experience. She never thought anything would happen to him. And she wasn't particularly worried about him. Uh, so th- that was kind of the immediate reaction of the family. And afterwards, when he was, when he was liberated, under the cloud of these, these revelations, the children were basically estranged from him. It really destroyed the family. It broke up the family. There was also a, a half-sister, Diane. Because Goldie, after, after her husband died, took up with a famous French jockey they had a, a love child named Diane who was Wado's half sister and Diane became uh one of my key sources years later she remained close to Wado uh to the end maybe the one who was closest to him and uh she she stuck by him all to the end he he actually he he never never licked the gambling habit and it really it ruined him all the money he gotten from selling his stock it basically just kind of dwindled uh, through his, his gambling. He was forced to sell the family chateau. He lived in a kind of handsome uh, manor house near on the on the former chateau grounds. But he was just completely uh, immersed in debt. He would, bo- he would borrow money from his friends and not pay it back. And um, I mean, he, at the end, he was virtually penniless. His his sister Diane stuck by him to the end. And in fact, she's the one who took him to the hospital when he finally. Collapsed from various ailments. Uh, that was really uh, the end of him at age at age eighty. But uh, it is a sad story. I mean, I, I call it a Greek tragedy, but in the sense that it's the, it's the fall of a, of a powerful person, partly due to his to his own flaws. Because if what really happened to him, which really derailed his life, was not the kidnapping per se, but the revelations about his his own flaws. And that's, that was really the chink in his armor. And that's, that's what ultimately um, led to his ruins.
2: You've spoken about this story offering a panorama of life at this time. What can this story tell us about the wider context of France and I guess Europe more widely? Because we've got ties to Belgium here as well.
3: one thing is that uh, during this decade, it, it, it was a decade, it was called, it was called the Decade of Lead it was a decade in which there was just a tidal wave of of kidnappings many of them uh, political this one was not political some thought initially it was the radicals you know taking taking this capitalist uh, snatching this capitalist and uh, maybe assassinating him but it was it, it was not that but there were many other kidnappings at the time that were political the the head of the german uh, employers union hans martin schleyer was kidnapped and assassinated by the red brigades just a couple of months before waldo aldo Moreau, the former italian prime minister was was kidnapped by the red brigades and assassinated um, a few months after waldo after waldo's liberation so what one one thing it says about the, the the 1970s is that there was this was a period of uh, of, of violence, of kidnappings, of political violence. One thing that's interesting is that the police response to to Wado's kidnapping, the, the adamant refusal to pay to pay the ransom, and the fact that the kidnappers were all rounded up. It ended very badly for them. This actually virtually put an end to this spate of kidnappings in France, at least. More broadly, I think it's it says something about uh, the 1970s. You know, the, the kind of the the image of, of, of capitalism, of capitalists, there was, the, there was the, you know, 1968, it was this big upheaval in France and, and elsewhere, kind of this youth revolt against uh, the establishment and uh, basically uh, against people like like Guado. That had settled down by then, but there they were still, France was still living in the kind of the wake of, of 1968. And... Uh, this, uh, this sense that uh, people like people like Wado were considered by many many people, particularly obviously on the left, as uh, you know, part of the establishment, the bad establishment that they that they were opposed to. It was also in a major sense the end of an era. It was the end of the De Gaulle era. You know, De Gaulle um, survived the uh, revolt of sixty eight, but sixty nine. He resigned in nineteen seventy. He, he died, and so that was really the the end of this uh, this era, the beginning of the Fifth Republic in France, uh, under the domination of of Charles de Gaulle. And so um, it was also a period, uh, his successor, uh, Georges Pompidou, was uh, a collector of modern art. He was uh, somebody who wanted to really remake the urban face of Paris and did to some extent. The face of Paris was really changing during this period. And also um, the importance of nuclear energy in, in France, because of the uh, the oil shock in 1973, you know, forced the French to to kind of rethink their energy policy, and they opted for pretty much an, an all nuclear energy policy. And Alpans company was selected to to build all those those power plants. So this is. An, another aspect of this era, and also and more broadly, there was it was a lot of change in uh, French society. You know, it was kind of the, disc, the disco era and uh, beginnings of certainly a, a liberation of sexual culture. The beginnings of the co- coming out of, of, of gay culture. I mean, it was a it was a period of I think an important period of transition in many many ways the 1970s in 1970s in France in Europe in, in general. And uh, this is a context in which Wado's kidnapping took. Took place. It could have happened maybe in, in another era, but the fact that this was a time of political violence, this wave of kidnappings, and in a way, I wouldn't say it was inevitable that he would be a target, but it, it kind of w- was logical that somebody like like Wado in that era in that position was likely to become a, a target of political violence and uh, you know kidnapping, and uh, and so that that's that's the context in which in which it happened.
0: That was author Tom Sancton. His book, The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire, is out now published by Dutton. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.